Patrick Balpin, the team of Brass and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. This is weekly Monday appearance, the managing editor of Fangraphs. His name is Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron comes to us today live on tape from the dog park in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And as he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of note this week, a trade that has sent Luis Valbuena and Dan Straley from the Chicago Cubs organization to Houston in exchange for outfielder Dexter Fowler. Dave Cameron examines that in some depth. Last week, the Zips projections for the Minnesota Twins came out at Fangraphs.com. And uh, in those, within those, one finds that Joe Maurer is merely an average player, or is projected to be merely an average player in the year 2015. How did that happen, I ask Dave Cameron. And, of course, of considerable interest to everybody, Max Scherzer signs with the Washington Nationals a seven-year, $210 million contract. Uh, and um, that's a contract that will be paid out uh, not over seven years, but over 14 years. We discussed the reasons for that deferral arrangement. And, of course, I asked Cameron the most pressing question, uh, which is, uh, what are the odds that Max Scherzer will be alive when the contract is finally over? Uh, I'm not an actuary doing life insurance, so I don't know off the top of my head, my guess is. Uh, we're probably like 99%. Given that he has access to very quality health care, uh, basically the only things that would kill him are some kind of catastrophic accident. It's Fangrass Audio Features, managing editor Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. dog park is that right i am at a dog park all right well i will advise our, our listeners i will make note of this to our listeners that you are currently outside at a dog park yeah expect squeaking and barking yeah there you are there you are uh everything going right uh yeah not too bad okay you know, it's a busy day tired or are you getting a reasonable sleep I'm getting more sleep than in my wife. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, good yeah. for you. Uh, yeah. Good for her, I guess. Bad for yeah. her, yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, yes, a busy day insofar as, what, uh, Max Scherzer is signed with the Nationals? Yeah, a lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money, but or but maybe not as much money as it would appear at first glance. But maybe the promise of a lot of money yes. well into the future. Well into the future. Uh, yeah. en- enough money. We'll say enough money. Yeah. Enough money for me. I mean, yeah. I wouldn't have said no if I was him. Right. Um, uh, so that's, of course, something to discuss. Uh, let's see. Moreover, uh, there's what the smaller, well, not not very much smaller, but uh, Luis Valbuena is going to. Yeah. Not not very much smaller. The Luis Valbuena trade from the Max Scherzer signing. Yeah, right. They're very similar. But it's still uh, still useful for the two teams involved. The other ones, the Cubs and uh, Cubs and Astros, and then Fowler, Fowler, Dexter Fowler is going to Houston, and then some mention of Giovanni Gallardo. It appears. Yeah, Gallardo might be traded to Texas before the end of the day as well. Okay. So, uh, yeah, busy day for a holiday for, for baseball. It's supposed to be a holiday. They, they apparently didn't get the memo. Right. Uh, all right. Let's uh, discuss Max Scherzer, if you would. Uh, here's the thing that I would like to know first. So uh, this is not really a spoiler insofar as you've written an entire article about it, but um, uh, Max Scherzer signed for seven, year, seven years, $210 million, but there's a lot of deferred money. Yeah. A lot of deferred money. Like half of the money is deferred, basically. Right, to the point where if you were to have signed a contract uh, with like a sort of typically uh, allocated one, um, it would be roughly, what, seven years, 170? Yeah, somewhere in that range. It depends on the discount rate you use. Net present value calculations like the one I did in the post depend pretty heavily on what kind of 
discount rate you put on the kind of the future payments. Uh, Major League Baseball and the Players Association use 4%. Uh, some people suggest you should use something even lower than that, maybe like 2%, like the government 10-year bond. Uh, I used 7 just because, you know, that's kind of the expected uh, average rate of the stock market over a long period of time that Scherzer could invest in, and hopefully he has a somewhat competent financial advisor, but it doesn't really matter which number you use as long as you use the same number to compare everybody. I think the point is that the Scherzer contract is probably worth about what we thought it would get, about what he thought it, we thought he would get, uh, before the start of the offseason. It's just inflated by 30 or 40 million dollars to account for the fact that they deferred, uh, 105 million into the future. You know, I've seen suggestions that one, one motivation for doing so, uh, my concern, uh, my concern is Scott Boris's desire to have signed him to a number that looks like, uh, that's over 200 million dollars. Yeah. Um, there also seems like maybe there's some tax breaks involved. Are those two the main reasons? Is only one of them the reason, or are there other reasons? I think the desire to say I signed a $200 million contract is probably the driving force. Mm-hmm. My guess would be uh, that Scott Boris probably ne- negotiated this deal primarily with the Nationals' ownership, who he has a, a long history of doing deals with. He did the Jason Worth deal with them and the Rafael Soriano deal with them, where uh, he probably went to the Nationals and said, hey, look, you know, you've got a lot of money. I'm willing to give you Scherzer over 14 years uh, in order to get this this figure that I, have, you know, have set as the goal. Uh, and you know, I'm, because I'm spreading it out over 14 years, it's not actually going to cost you 200 million. So we both win. You get him for the equivalent of 170, and I get to say I signed the guy for 200 million. And this is the most money we've seen deferred by like 80 million almost, isn't it? By a lot, yeah. Bobby Bonilla, I think, had 25 million in deferred money. I think Ken Griffey Jr. had a lot of deferred money. A Rod had some deferred money, but we've never seen half of a contract this size get deferred. And, uh, so why not? Uh, I mean, why not? And why? Why is Scherzer the exception? Is it? You know, I mean, I assume that there are other sort of um, impressive figures that Boris has wanted to get for his clients in the past. Why is this the exception? Well, I think, you know, probably the the player has some impact on this as well, right? So, like, maybe Max Scherzer is willing to live a lower style, lower lifestyle than some others, uh, where if you're, you know, a player making, you know, $20 million a year or a customer making $20 million a year and the, the agent says to you, I can get you a big number, but you're not going to get it for 15 years. So you say, okay, well, fine, now my income's $15 million. Uh, taxes are going to take a good chunk of that. The agent's going to take a good chunk of that. All of a sudden, now I'm only living on, you know, five or six or seven million a year. You know, obviously, I would live on five or six or seven million dollars a year, but maybe major league players in general would, would not want to, and maybe they have multiple uh, child support payments to make, and you know, a lifestyle that commands a certain standard of living. Maybe they would just take less money in order to get more of it now, rather than getting a larger total figure deep in the future when they can spend it on fewer hookers and cocaine. Oh, yes, <laughs> it's true, yeah. Um, now, and I, I guess also Max Scherzer has to believe that he'll be alive in 15 years to sign this contract. Yeah, I mean, I think most people uh, generally assume that if they die, they're going to stop receiving their salary. <laughs> Did, what is the probability... Uh, you might know the numbers better than I am, but based off of uh, life expectancies and different variables you might consider, like uh, what you know, what we might know of Max Scherzer, what is the probability that he will be alive in 15 years? Uh, I'm not an actuary doing life insurance. So I don't know off the top of my head. My guess is uh, we're probably like 99% or 98% or something that he Yeah, lives. it's probably like, high. You know, yeah. it's pretty, given that he has access to very quality health care, uh, basically the only things that would kill him are some kind of catastrophic accident. 
you know, and he's prohibited from doing some catastrophic things by his contract. He's not allowed to go skiing anymore, or, you know, other things that might endanger his life. So it's basically like cancer is kind of the thing that might kill him more in right. a car accident, right? And like it would have to be, it would have to be really bad cancer because he's probably because as you know, yeah. like he probably has access to all the best doctors. Right, it'd be like pancreatic cancer or one of the ones that they don't have a cure for. Yeah, uh, you know, if he gets like normal, you know, uh, run-of-the-mill leukemia, that's beatable, as, as I've heard. Yeah, that's right. Just some average cancer. Yeah, right. If he gets one of the weak cancers, you know, like a double double A level cancer. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is terrible. I really hope he doesn't die. I hope. I don't know if anyone dies really, but uh, I do. This is not to hope to make sure that. Here's a here's a here's a question that I have is. Um, as you as you noted, uh, the crowd said that he would sign for roughly 170 million dollars. Yeah. Um, you and others said, uh, you know, guessed that he'd probably sign for about 170 million dollars. Yeah. Uh, Max Scherzer ended up signing for the equivalent of about 170 million dollars. Yeah. And this is not just with regard to Scherzer. This is with regard to other. For agent contracts like this, why is there so much uh, hand wringing and uh, you know drama that goes that is attached to these sorts of contracts when everybody knows roughly what the price was? And wh- why does it take till you know uh, middle of January to strike a deal for a player in, when everybody basically knows the price tag? Well, I think it took this long for Scott Boris to find someone to agree to the price tag. I mean, Boris basically said, like, this is my price and I'm not going to move. And then the Yankees and the Red Sox and Tigers and a whole bunch of teams that you would have assumed would be in the bidding, they all said no thanks. And the Cubs went after John Muster instead. And so all of the teams that you would have assumed would have been the teams that Boris were negotiating were not the teams he ended up negotiating with because uh, they weren't interested at the price that Boris set. And so he basically had to shop around. And, you know, uh, as he's noted multiple times, he's really good at getting ownership involved uh, and kind of selling them on players. He did this with Prince Fielder and the Tigers a couple of years ago uh, where he's, you know, says, okay, I'm going to uh, go over the baseball operations staff's head, going to go over the general manager's head, and I'm going to do this deal with just the owners. And usually the owner's not going to meddle at the beginning of the offseason. They're going to let their staff do what they want and kind of let things play out. And then kind of at the end of the offseason, the owner comes in and says, yeah, you know, I think I just want to spend a lot of my own money. Uh, and Boris is pretty good at about waiting until January and kind of uh, getting after the Christmas break and then hitting these owners up for a lot of cash and getting it. What is the what is the longer and the shorter history of ownership involving themselves in deals? Well, I think, you know, there are some owners who are much more notorious for this than others. I mean, obviously the Steinbrenners in New York were uh, probably the most famous, uh, especially George Steinbrenner uh, when he was alive, constantly was just doing whatever he wanted, regardless of what his GMs did. I think probably the most famous example of this is a couple of years ago when Brian Cashman uh, had a press conference to announce the signing of Raphael Soriano, at which press conference he, he like publicly acknowledged that he was against the deal. So he's like, hey, I just signed a closer. Well, I didn't want to. I don't think this guy's worth the money. Uh, and so, you know, Cashman made no bones about the fact that that was not his move. <laughs> that was an ownership move, and they vetoed him, and they uh, gave Soriano $36 million when he didn't want to do that. <clears throat> I think, uh, you know, Peter Angelos has had a pretty long history of involving himself in the Orioles deals, mostly with nixing deals rather than making them. The, I think their front office has made a lot of contracts that Angelos has said he wouldn't sign off on. Uh, the Nationals, the, the learners, uh, have kind of a long history of signing Scott Boris guys, Jason Worth and Soriano being two of the more recent ones, and, and now this deal. Um, so there are owners who are maybe uh, slightly more vulnerable to being manipulated by agents than others. And, I mean, it seems, some of the ones you've mentioned, it seems they have had 
they, they, these have been in, <laughs> okay, these have been embattled uh, ownership uh, groups or ownership owners. I mean, I, for years, it seems like the Yankees started getting good at the moment when Steinbrenner was removed from uh, being able to make these sorts of deals. Yeah, I don't think there's any question that if you're uh, the baseball operations staff and you say, okay, you know, we don't want to sign this guy, you've probably, you know, assuming you're competent, you've done your research and you say, you know, this isn't the best plan for us. If ownership goes against that, uh, they're they're unlikely to be better baseball experts or uh, better gauges of how to build a roster than the team of people they've put in place. And so uh, I think in general, when the ownership kind of uh, goes out on their own and, and does their own deal, um, it's probably not a great idea because the, you already have a team of uh, at least somewhat qualified experts who have decided that this is not the best path. Uh, generally, I think the best deals are when ownership and, and the baseball operations staff are like, yeah, let's do this together, rather than ownership being like, screw you guys, I don't care what you think, I'm doing this myself. Now, uh, the Jason Worth deal is interesting, I suppose, because, uh, as you as you noted, well, that was a lot of money, and it, it was, I think, that, that deal was signed, or was made at a time when the Nationals had not been particularly good in recent history, um, and although they had quite a bit of promise in the way, at least uh, uh, Steven Strasburg and... Uh, I don't know if uh, Bryce Harper had been drafted yet, but it, the idea is that there was promise available. Uh, the first two years were not necessarily excellent, but he's been uh, Worth has been pretty good the last two years. Yeah, Jason Worth has been worth his contract, which is hilarious given the reaction to the deal and the fact that I think this is probably somewhat unpredictable in the sense that it would have been hard to foresee Jason Worth getting better from the point when they signed him. I mean, you were signing Jason Worth thinking this is what he is, and then he has improved since then in his mid-30s, which is somewhat unusual. Um, so, you know, there could be an argument that perhaps the learners or the nationals got a little lucky with this one, and you shouldn't necessarily uh, say, okay, well, they, they know what they were doing because the Worth contract worked out. I mean, the Rafael Soriano contract certainly did not work out. Uh, so there is a counterexample uh, in this case. But I think, you know, Jason Worth has been worth his contract and probably uh, instilled some confidence in the nationals' ownership group that they maybe uh, – aren't so terrible at picking big contract guys, and maybe that, you know, that might be another reason why they were willing to go after Max Scherzer. What is the uh, – uh, so we have seven years for a pitcher. What, is, what are the um, – where does that place Scherzer's contract in the context of, uh, of you know, a commitment in terms of years? It's uh, – it's, seven years is kind of the standard uh, longest deal that pitchers will sign now. I think Mike Hampton got eight like a decade ago, right. uh, you know, there's a picture, I think uh, the Blue Jays picture, Dave Steed may have gotten like 10, like 20 years ago, but it was like 10 years, a million apiece or something. Right. Uh, you know, generally, I think with pitchers, we see seven is kind of the line. Uh, two, 210 million is 5 million less than what Kershaw got from the Dodgers. Obviously, Kershaw wasn't a free agent. Um, uh, but I think, you know, this is probably, it would have to be considered like one of the three or four largest contracts for a pitcher uh, in baseball history. Okay, and uh, I don't know, this is a banal question, but is Max Scherzer worth it? I mean, it seems, the math that Jeff Sullivan did seems to suggest this is like exactly market value. So I think the, the is it worth it question, you could t- tackle it from two answers. Is Max Scherzer worth $170 million in a vacuum? Well, uh, other than that, if you probably couldn't pitch in a vacuum, that would like <laughs> make, make it hard for him to play baseball. You know, without context included, probably. Uh, Max Scherzer is probably, you know, $20 million better than John Lester. Or, you know, this is kind of what the market has said wins are worth, and Scherzer seems likely to produce enough wins to justify it. From the Nationals' perspective, their rotation was already really good. They were already very likely to win their division. Uh, you know, 
they already had a very deep playoff rotation. You, when you look at like the marginal upgrade of, you know, Scherzer over Tanner Roark, uh, and then maybe in the playoffs over, you know, Doug Vister or Gio Gonzalez, uh, assuming everyone stays healthy, I don't know that there's actually that big of a gain here. The Nationals get incrementally better in the short term. Uh, obviously it helps them if one of their pitchers goes down or if they make a trade or, you know, there's a certain, there's certain moves that could make this make more sense. But if it's just adding Scherzer in order to bump Roark to the bullpen, uh, and have, you know, the deepest rotation in baseball, I think as we saw with like the 2011 Phillies, having like five great starters doesn't necessarily guarantee you anything. And now there's a long-term cost that they're going to pay where they not, might not be able to keep Strasburg or Harper or, you know, certainly the guys were free agents at the end of this year with Fister and Zimmerman. If they end up letting some of these players go because they signed Max Scherzer to a really long deal that didn't actually make them all that much better in the short term, then maybe this wasn't a great deal for them after all. Uh, I forget, when, when the Phillies uh, were in the playoffs with that uh, robust rotation, did they move their last uh, one or two guys to the bullpen? Uh, I believe, uh, well, Joe Blanton, I think, when, in 2011, when they were supposed to have, like, the greatest rotation of all time, Blanton, I think, was terrible. I think he ended up not being very good. So he moved himself to the bullpen. Okay. Uh, I don't remember exactly what they did. I think the general is that the four starter ends up, uh, making one start. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fifth starter goes to the bullpen, but most teams with these kinds of super rotations have gone four, four man rotations in October rather than three. Do you, is, is there an argument to say that they ought to go three uh, three starters and just move the other two starters to the end of the bullpen? So now these are all very good pitchers. It depends on scheduling. Uh, you know, sometimes when there's, like, multiple off days and, and you can throw everyone on full rest, then yeah, probably. I don't think there's a lot of evidence that throwing starters on short rest in the postseason is a really good idea. The marginal uh, degradation of their performance seems to not make them – you know, the kind of pitcher that you would expect them to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you generally, team, playoff teams have at least a somewhat quality four starter to throw that would make it more beneficial to just keep everyone on full rest. Okay, uh, that's that deal. That's that deal. Oh, yeah, it's jo- uh, Jordan Zimmerman, I guess there are rumors about him. Why, why Jordan Zimmerman as opposed to anyone else? Well, he's the free agent at the end of the next year uh, or at the end of next season. Uh, and I think most likely uh, to be dealt. Um, Doug Vister has been traded several times for less than what we might expect based on Doug Fister's performances. So it seems like the market doesn't love Doug Fister for whatever reason, whether it's stuff or who knows. <laughs> but the market just doesn't seem to put a high value on Doug Fister. The other potential trade candidate would probably be Steven Strasburg, who only has two years left of arbitration before he's a free agent and is going to probably ask for more money than, than Scherzer just got from the Nationals. Uh, but I think the asking price for, for Strasburg would be extra, exceptionally high. And I'm not sure there's a team out there willing to meet that price. So I think of all the guys in the Nationals rotation, Zimmerman probably makes the most sense to trade. That said, it seems like Zimmerman's been on the block all winter and there hasn't been a trade for him. So, you know, maybe there's not a, a really obvious deal uh, to be made for Zimmerman either. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, the other trade that we mentioned was the uh, the deal that sends Dexter Fowler from Houston to Chicago in exchange for Luis Valbuena and Dan Straley. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, from what I've been reading, it appears to be uh, for everyone. Uh, it's uh, it's very obvious that Dexter Fowler will be playing center field for the Cubs, and yet, um, and I think he's only ex- played in center field exclusively as a major leaguer, uh, and yet, but the metrics suggest that he has been one of the worst of those uh, 
over that interval of time, which he has played, been in the major leagues playing center field. Yeah, I mean, I think Fowler is one of these guys where the <laughs> the scouts and the eye tests don't line up with the numbers. Where the numbers really hate Fowler's defense in the outfield, uh, and the scouts think he's an athletic, fast player who covers some ground and was supposed to be a plus defender coming up through the minors. Uh, so I think this is one of the cases where you know maybe. You have a little bit more skepticism about UZR and DRS and their ratings. I think anytime you have Coors Field involved and those park factors, you can like throw in a little more uncertainty where we know Coors Field and Floyd's batting average on balls in play a lot. Um, so perhaps uh, there could be some kind of park factor there that made Fowler look worse in Colorado. Then he went to Houston and posted the worst UZR of his career, which makes the, the park factor in Colorado argument seem a little bit more strained. But the Rock or the Astros do so do some defensive alignments that are a little bit unusual, and it's possible that he could have been positioned um, incorrectly based on, you know, batted ball charts and and balls not being hit exactly where the um, the BIS scores would have assumed that Fowler would have started, and perhaps the system was biased against them because of their shifts. There are reasons to think that like Fowler might be a slightly better defender than the numbers say. Or maybe he's just not that good and scouts have been wrong. Right. And, but it, does it, I mean, from your impression, does it seem as though the plan is uh, for the Cubs to use him in center field? Yeah, I mean, they didn't really have a center fielder before this, so. Uh, well, they don't really have a left fielder either. <laughs> well, that's true. Their outfield is pretty bad, which is why they traded an infielder for an outfielder. Right. So they have, uh, so it, it seems as though they said, uh, well, I mean, especially in the context of players they could possibly acquire, it made sense to fill center and left, and it made sense to replace Arizmendi Alcantara more than it did Chris Coughlin. Yeah, I mean, I, I would guess that no one's getting replaced, right? You're just creating depth, and you're going to play all these guys. So, like, Alcantara's still going to play. He's just going to play less, and Coughlin's going to play less, and maybe even Fowler's going to play less. Like, now you have three guys for two spots rather than two guys for two spots. Okay. All right. Uh, the, uh, the Cubs, I think, are now – I was looking at the projections we have for them – they are sort of a what, league average team now, I think. Maybe. Or slightly better than that. I think 83 wins, maybe. Okay. Yeah, all right. That's that's pretty good. And uh, That's okay, yeah. And uh, Now, listen, I was thinking about this today because uh, we released the Zips projections for the Diamondbacks. Which were not very good. They're not particularly flattering. Yeah. And, uh, and I was trying to say, well, if someone were attempting to be optimistic, how would they be optimistic about that? And uh, I guess one advantage is the Diamondbacks have a number of younger pitchers or less experienced pitchers, and it would seem to me that the variance in the potential outcomes for that sort of pitcher is larger than for, you know, a, a veteran who has a number of years of very similar very similar production. Uh, is that is that a possible is it does that same notion maybe apply to the Cubs that there's a higher variance, uh, a more possible outcomes given the fact that a lot of the players they'll be uh, using this year have you know have very few major league at bats. Yeah, I think so. I think anytime you get uh, less major league performance uh, in order to base your projections, you should have less certainty about that that performance uh, or that projection at least. And so you say, okay, if we've got a whole bunch of young guys that we're using a lot of minor league data to inform our projections, and we know minor league data is not quite as good as major league data in informing projections, it's good, but it's not quite as good. Then we need to have larger error bars, and so we say, okay. Maybe the Cubs aren't an 83-win team. Maybe they're a 76- to 89-win team somewhere in there, and we're not exactly sure what number it is. We're even more veteran team, like maybe the Nationals, and we say, nope, we're pretty sure this is a 88- to 92-win team, you know, barring injury. Right, okay, so the, yeah, so the mar- that margin of error becomes becomes lower. Yeah. All right, and so, what, so I guess the Astros have decided that uh, Matt Dominguez uh, was not – 
Uh, well, he's bad. Yeah. Okay. Right. I think they did, they looked at him and said, "Wow, you're bad." That was uh, yeah. Maybe was not a, to his face, probably. But Matt Dominguez, I think, was a pitcher. If you if you ever sort of are, uh, uh, you know, sorting through the leaderboards looking for players with curiously low batting averages and balls in play, uh, he's he's way down there, 255 for his career, and I think that it's probably uh, supported by some. Uh, worse than average uh, infield fly ball rates would be my guess. Although, yeah, yes, I think so in, in college right. Dominguez was supposed to be like a great glove guy who might hit, right? And then now the glove is not as great as people thought, at least according to the numbers. And they were right about him not hitting. So. Okay, okay, yeah. And, but yeah. he does. It, it, there's also like still there's still a version where you could say because he has demonstrated pretty decent power. Um, Especially relative to how much contact he's making, right? I mean, he's hit uh, the last two years. He's hit 37 home runs combined in about 1,200 plate appearances. So you could say, well, that's well, that's uh, almost 20 home runs a year for someone who who has had uh, some contact issues. Although actually, upon looking at it, it's mostly his plate discipline's not great, but it's mostly manifests itself on the uh, not walking side of things. Right. Yeah. He, he, very low on base percentage guy. Right. So maybe yeah. his. See him as a sort of guy who uh, is hurting himself in terms of the contact he makes because he swings. He swings a lot. He swings a yeah, lot. Yeah, he's, he's making contact with bad pitches, probably. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. All right. So that, that's what we can say about him. Uh, oh, right. Looking elsewhere. Oh, I wanted to ask about this. Um, uh, we released. Speaking of Zips projections, we released recently the Zips projections for the Minnesota Twins. They were also terrible. They were also maybe even worse. Actually, they were worse, they were worse. I think they yeah. were not as bad as I've seen. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were pretty bad. The um, the uh, so and one thing that is revealed in that post is that uh, at least per Zips, Joe Mauer, the estimates about Joe Mauer's 2015 season are that he's almost a precisely league average player. Yeah, and that is something that for a number of years would have been uh, that would have been a surprising comment to make about Joe Mauer. Yeah, when back when he was a catcher who uh, had power, that was not true. But right. now he's a first baseman without power. Right, and even uh, he was catch- uh, even. Wait, when you say he was a bit- oh yeah, he 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 had seasons where he hit he had a number of seasons where he hit fewer than ten home runs and was still right. But he, st- he still had ISOs in the like you know one fifty to two hundred range. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had a lot of doubles, so you don't have to hit home runs to necessarily have some power. Right. Uh, I think last year his ISO was around a hundred or so. It was a middle infielder level, uh, which isn't so good for a first baseman. Right, and do you have the general? I mean, you've sketched it very, very broadly here, but what is that? Like, how did that happen? What is the what is the narrative that brought Joe Mauer to where he is today? Well, I think it, so you have to talk about the concussion, right? Like, that's the thing that we can't really know is we don't know how much uh, the head trauma that he suffered behind the plate that caused him to move out from from catcher and two first bases affected his offensive performance. It seems like it probably has affected him to some degree. Uh, where we saw Justin Morneau in Minnesota had like, you know, very productive years and then had some concussions and lost his power as well. And, you know, I think the, the head trauma issue is one that we just don't really understand very well. So I don't really want to speculate and say we can say that he lost 27% of his ISO because of these concussions. We don't really know, but it seems like there are health factors at play here that might have caused Mauer to, uh, you know, decline quickly. Yeah, and I, I had touched on this with Kyla McDaniel this, uh, at the end of last week. It seems as though, uh, of course, we talk about the um, in terms of development, right? And there are a couple of cases of this now. Uh, certainly, uh, with regard to the Cubs, they have a player, Kyle Schwarber, 
uh, whose bat is uh, ahead of his glove. Um, he's he's a catcher, and his his hitting skills are above or better than his catching skills. And it's possible that um, it's possible that Schwarber could be could become a decent defensive catcher. It's not likely, but it's possible. But the the motivations for the Cubs to wait around for that um, are you know are pretty minimal. Um, and it and I guess one factor that I had never considered right is uh, when you put a catcher, when you make a guy a catcher, that he could get injured like Joe Maurer has, and then he's yeah. going right back to the position that you were not wanting him to play before. Yeah, and there's no question there's a greater risk of having a guy play behind the plate. I mean, you know, the physical uh, demands of catching will wear you down, even if you don't get a concussion or even if you don't blow out your knee or whatever. Like just, just the harm of playing catcher 120, 130 games a year has in your body. There's a reason these guys have shorter careers and, you know, the, the best catchers of all time get 8,000 plate appearances versus the guys at other positions get 12,000 or 13,000. I mean, you're talking, you know, 50% of a career basically if you move a guy out from behind the plate and he has a successful long career at first base or the outfield. So if you're really sure about a guy's bat and you're not so sure about his glove behind the plate, you should probably consider moving him just for the career longevity reason, even if not for the the prime value during the next few year reason. Right. And I guess, so how, so how do you know a catching prospect when you see one, like, you know, at the, at the amateur level, say, how do you say that? Well, that guy's definitely going to stick a catcher. And then how do you know when, when he has to move? Well, I don't think it's ever, I mean, besides like physical reasons or just limitations, you can say this guy has to move, but I think there's a tipping point at which it just a player is more valuable to another position. I think Bryce Harper is a pretty good example of this, right? Like everyone who saw Bryce Harper hit was pretty sure he was going to turn into one of the best hitters in baseball. And you say, okay, how much do I want to risk that to try and get, you know, 10 or 15% more value in the seasons that he does catch? Uh, and then, you know, he takes on some extra risk and maybe blows out his knee or he gets some balls off the mask and he has, you know, concussion issues or head trauma issues. Uh, do I really want to risk what might be a generational slugger in exchange to try and get a little bit more value at the front end of his career before he's going to have to move uh, at the back half of his career anyway? I mean, really, like the great hitting catchers almost always end up uh, moving to another position in their 30s anyway. So you're saying, okay, for five or six or seven years, uh, I'm going to get more value up front as a catcher. Uh, if the long-term value of having, you know, a 15-year outfielder is above that, then there's no real point in trying to maximize those first few years unless you think I have no chance of signing this guy and I'm just going to burn all his value while it's under club control to me on this first contract. Uh, you know, maybe if you're a mid-market or low-revenue team, maybe that's an argument you make. Right. And then so, of course, uh, every team needs a catcher. Every team generally has two of them. Uh, so you, there are some players who become catchers. And uh, I mean, what distinguishes them from – is it because they were not as offensively um, developed uh, as other players or, or, you know, relative to their glove? You know, I mean, Yadier Molina obviously has turned into a good, uh, uh, good, good player on both sides of the ball, as has Jonathan Lucroy, Buster Posey. Is there anything uh, exceptional about these guys as opposed to the, some of the players like Harper, Schwarber, et cetera? I think what we're seeing is maybe you see with Molina and Lucroy and, and Molina is we're seeing better athletes behind the plate than we used to. I think, and, you know, this could be just bias from my memory, but I, I, you know, in the 80s and early 90s when I was really getting into baseball, it seemed like every catcher looked like Ron Karkovice, right? Like they were just these like, you know, hockey goalies basically who sat behind the plate and tried to block everything without being movement. And I remember like Benito Santiago was 
extremely exceptional because he could actually slide left to right and he could block pitches in the dirt. And uh, Tony Pena was another one of these guys who was extremely athletic as a catcher. These seem to be a little bit more the norm now where you see maybe a Craig Biggio type wouldn't have gotten moved out from behind the plate quite so quickly nowadays because teams are valuing athleticism uh, and, you know, the ability to move a little bit more uh, than they used to. Right. And with the idea, do you think that, uh, I mean, if this supposition is correct, do you sense that it's uh, not entirely unrelated to a greater understanding of uh, catcher-related metrics, like uh, saving pass balls and framing, et cetera? So I would say it's probably too soon to say, like, you know, we've seen a wholesale shift in the types of catchers teams are going after because of the work published three or four years ago by Mike Bass. But I think that there is probably an increased uh, emphasis on uh, maybe catcher-pitcher relationships that you went even before framing, and I think maybe the framing research has kind of helped solidify some of this, uh, you know, thought process. But I do think, uh, you know, you talk to pitchers and you hear pitching coaches talk, they've long put a, a pretty significant in, impact on at least the relationship between the catcher and pitcher. And pitchers kind of know in a pretty quick order how much they like throwing to a particular guy. Uh, and you, they don't necessarily need metrics to figure out that I hate the way this guy catches the ball or I, I don't like the way he handles the staff or this guy's just here for his bat. Uh, and so I do think teams have, you know, after the mid-90s where everyone was going for offense at every position, teams have fairly quickly said, you know, this isn't a great idea. Let's emphasize guys who can, you know, work with our pitching staff and we'll find offense elsewhere. The, um, uh, oh boy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yes. The, uh, what are your current thoughts on the positional adjustment for catchers? I think it's too high. Okay. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, uh, we kind of created, or not we, but the, the positional adjustments were created in a time when catchers didn't hit at all. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think we've seen over the last few years that perhaps talent that used to go to other positions has stayed behind the plate. Uh, Buster Posey, I think, is a pretty decent example of uh, a guy who's long been rumored to move off the position, uh, but the Giants have kept him behind the plate and is obviously a very good hitter. Uh, I think the catchers as a group hit better now than they used to, and when you have a kind of a, a static positional adjustment, uh, it's probably overrating catchers uh, to a little bit of a degree, maybe half a win or you know maybe even upwards of a win per year, somewhere in that range. Um, because our baseline for what we expect catcher offense to be is too low. And so what do we, what's the remedy for that? Uh, change it, probably. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I think that the tricky part is you don't know whether this is just a couple-year blip on the radar or if this is like a long-term trend. And so if you like just change the positional adjustments every time one like quality defensive position has a good hitting year, I mean, if a center fielder uh, if a group of center fielders, center fielders in general, hit better than left fielders, you don't say, okay, well, you know, now center fielders are less valuable defensively than left fielders just because they hit better in one year. Uh, that You know, center fielders are clearly better defensively than left fielders, otherwise teams would just switch them. So, you know, you, you don't want to make positional adjustment changes based on, you know, a year or two of a blip. But I do think we see a, a pretty sustained trend over the last few years of better hitting catchers uh, or better athletes better players in general playing catchers, and that might make the positional adjustment slightly out of date at this point. Interesting conversation. The beginning of an interesting conversation, it would seem. Yeah, probably not the whole conversation. Right. One one would need – it also seems like there would need to be some uh, hard data being being presented. Yeah, Yeah. correct. All right. Well, uh, Dave Cameron, you've uh, you've fulfilled your obligation to Fangraphs Audio. Uh, Huzzah. Huzzah. Are you mucking around now? Is there mucking? You know, like, so the dog got tired of the dog park, and there's a horse trail at this particular park uh, that we have migrated to. So she is 
wandering through the leaves of the horse trail. Is she looking at horses? Does she seeing horses? Well, the horses are not currently on the trail. They could be, but I don't see any at the moment. Yeah. Uh, do- um, horses are giant dogs. They are really big, yeah. yeah. She's kind of scared of horses a little bit. Yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, let's say thank you to you and then goodbye. So thank you, Dave Cameron. Goodbye. No, I'll say, I'll say that to you. You say thank you uh, back, or you say you're welcome. Uh, okay, you're welcome. That has been Managing Editor of Fangraphs Dave Cameron, Carson Stooley. This is Fangraphs Audio.